0: I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the second chapter and the tenth verse, the tenth verse in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. For we are his workmanship, or as indeed it should be put according to the original, his workmanship are we, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. We already have glanced at this uh, great statement last Sunday morning, when we took it in its context in connection with the two previous verses, verses 8 and 9, because these three verses together, as we saw, are a composite statement. And therefore, before we come to take this verse on its own and separately, it was right that we should have taken it as a part of the argument which the apostle puts before us in the three verses together. The argument, you remember, was this. That our salvation is entirely of grace. It comes from the grace of God. There is no boasting that's excluded altogether. We mustn't even boast of our faith. We mustn't turn even faith into works. We are saved by grace, through faith. Faith is the instrument And the channel, it is not the determining cause. Now that was his great argument, you remember, that uh, it is all by grace and of grace. And he puts that to us in a negative and in a positive manner. And in this tenth verse, uh, he brought out what is in many ways his final argument. He says... uh, it is entirely of grace, it's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any men should boast for. He says, the thing is impossible, it's quite monstrous and ridiculous, because we are his workmanship, his workmanship are we. And indeed he says this can finally be clinched by the fact that uh, the good works that we are to perform as Christians are works that uh, are already before ordained that we should walk in them. Even the very works that we do as Christians are prepared beforehand for God, uh, by God, uh, that we might walk in them. Well, now there we have looked at it in that manner, and uh, therefore, uh, chiefly, we looked at it in a negative way. But it's such a, a mighty and such a glorious statement that it would be very wrong indeed uh, to leave it uh, just as that. It is a part of the argument, but it is a statement in and of itself, a positive statement, and one of the most important and vital statements that we can ever consider together. Here we are given one of these extraordinary definitions by the apostle of what it means to be a Christian. And uh, there is, I suppose, no more exalted statement of it than just this, that we are God's workmanship. Now that is the truth about us all as Christians, and that is the truth about the Christian Church. And it is our business to learn to think of ourselves in that way, and it is only as we think of ourselves in that way that we shall truly function as Christians. Now, I would again say that it seems to me more and more that all our troubles really come out of this one fact, our failure to realize the truth about ourselves and our position as Christians. The central trouble with us, and it's an astounding thing to realize, is just the kind of initial failure to have the true view of all this. We are so much the creatures of tradition and traditions. We we start off with the wrong ideas. Everybody starts with the wrong conception of Christianity. We will persist in thinking of it it as just being good, or doing good, or something like that, and it's extremely difficult to, to shed that idea, but that is something which falls so hopelessly short of this great New Testament conception. These New Testament Christians are constantly being exhorted to realize the privilege of their position. Though they were but a handful of people in a great pagan society, they're always being told to rejoice. They're being told to consider their wonderful destiny. They're being reminded of who they are and what they are, and they're told to lift up their heads and to go forward in a triumphant manner. Well, no, that uh, is all done, of course, because the New Testament uh, expounds the true doctrine concerning the Christian as to uh, what he is. So that we can put it like this. Are we filled with this sense of privilege and of joy? What's our understanding of being Christian? What's our view of the church? Now, I think you'll agree with me when I say that Speaking generally, we always tend to think of it in some human terms, and we tend to think of the whole church of God as a human institution and society. The activities of men and what men are doing and not doing, and uh, committees and gatherings and organizations and things like that, well, all these things are a part of it and they're essential, but they're not really the church. That's not what makes the church the church, and it's exactly the same thing with regard to the individual Christian. Are we confident this morning? Have we got assurance as we consider ourselves and think of our whole Christian life and all that belongs to that life? Do we think of it solely in terms of ourselves and what we are doing or proposing to do? Or do we see ourselves as part of a a great process Do we realize that we are having the privilege of being brought into this great scheme and this great plan? Now, that's the kind of thing that the apostle is here putting before us in a positive manner. And let us therefore come immediately to consider the terms that he uses as he does so. Now, his first proposition is this. We are God's workmanship. That's the first thing that we've got to realize about ourselves as Christians. Now, negatively, we saw last week that that means that we don't make ourselves Christians. We are not what we are as the result of anything that we've done. Nothing whatsoever. Boasting is excluded. Not of works. Not of yourselves. There's the negative. But we don't stop with the negative this morning. We rather want to look at it positively like this. We are God's handiwork. That's what he's saying. That's the meaning of his term. We are, if you like, a thing of his making. Now, this is to me the most uh, remarkable and the most thrilling thought. That uh, we are something that is being made and fashioned By God. Now, you can think of this individually. We can think of it of ourselves as Christians. And we must think of it as being true of the whole church. Now, again, I think the best way, perhaps, of putting this is to put it in the form of a question. Are we habitually thinking of ourselves in that way? Isn't it, uh, less true to say of most of us, that we will persist somehow in thinking of God as being entirely passive. We've got an idea of God there in the heavens, uh, entirely passive and waiting for us. Ah, we say, of course, if I go to God, he will answer me, he will listen to me, he will answer me, he will bless me. But we think, don't we, of the real activity of us as being an activity on our part. Uh, God is some great treasure house, some great storehouse. He's got great gifts to give. Yes, but he does nothing about it. He just waits until we do something. And then when we take an action, God responds. Now, let us examine ourselves, I say, in the light of that. Isn't that our tendency? To think of it in that way. I decide for Christ, and therefore I am justified. Well, then I may go on like that for years. Then I decide that I want to be sanctified, so I apply for that also. And then I have that. But God's passive the whole time. It's my activity that matters. It's what I decide. It's what I do. But that's, of course, entirely false to this teaching, which reminds us and puts its tremendous emphasis upon this fact that Christianity is entirely the result of the activity of God. His workmanship are we. It's God who's the workman. It's God who's active. Now, it is astounding, isn't it, that uh, we could ever fall into that particular error, because the Bible is nothing but a record of the activity of God. How is it possible that anyone can read an open Bible, starting with the word in the beginning, God, and then go on to think of the whole thing as the activity of men? It's God who acts right through. He made men. He made the world. Men sinned. God went after him. It's God who called Abram. It's God who created the kings. It's God who called the prophets. It's God who gave the law. It's God who gave the instructions about building the tabernacle and the temple. And it was God in the fullness of the times who sent forth his own son. It is his workmanship, God's activity, from beginning to end. And yet I say the pathetic uh, fact is that even as Christians We tend to forget that and to think even of our Christian life and of our being Christians at all, in terms of something that we've done or something that we've maintained. I say that even if we start in the right way, we tend to slip in the other idea later on and we will persist in thinking of God as being more or less passive and simply ready to respond to what we do and to what we desire. But the very term the apostle uses here should make uh, such thoughts quite impossible. God is the workman. God is the one who is fashioning. It's a tremendous picture, this, of God as a kind of artist, if you like, as some kind of artisan. God. Uh, we must think of, according to this picture, as in some great workshop. And there he is forming and fashioning and bringing something into being. Now this is, as you realize, a very characteristic uh, biblical idea with regard to God. Take the uh, pictures which we are given in many places in the scripture of God as a potter. You get it in the Old Testament... You get it in the New Testament. This same apostle in writing to the Romans, you remember, in the ninth chapter uses that very argument. There is a lump of clay. And the workman, the potter, comes along and he takes hold of this shapeless mass of clay. And he begins to work on it. And he begins to round it off and to get rid of angles and corners He's got certain lids and he puts it on the lid. He's fashioning. He's making a vase or something like that. Now that's the picture that he's given. The potter and the clay. Now that's precisely the idea that the apostle has here. That God is the worker. And we are the clay that's being formed and fashioned. The work is his, not ours. So that you can think of it in those various terms... The workman, the, the, the artist who is producing something, indeed the apostle uses another term that is still more explicit, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus, and that takes us right back, of course, uh, to the original idea of creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What's Creation. Well, the very idea of creation is this, that something is made out of nothing. That is the essential idea in creation. Something made out of nothing. It wasn't there before, but it's now brought into being. Well, now, you notice that that is the kind of way in which the apostle thinks of the Christian. So that we must say farewell forever to all ideas of improvement. And of self-improvement especially. The fact is about the Christian that he is a new creation. A new creature. God the creator. God the potter, the artificer. God the great maker, the great worker. Has brought something into being in my life that was not there before. That is what makes me a Christian. And I'm not a Christian apart from that. So that to talk about Christian nations and a man being a Christian because he belongs to a certain nation is just, of course, a blank denial of the whole biblical teaching. It's God's action, a specific action, a new action. The God who at the beginning, as Paul puts it in the second epistle, you remember to the Corinthians in the fourth chapter and the sixth verse, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness in the original creation... That same God, in the same way, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now that's what it means to be a Christian. Nothing less than that. Or oh, how can one put it? What concerns me this morning is not simply that we should have the right idea, but that we should all uh, come to see that what a travesty of Christianity is this idea that we are Christians because of something we are or something we do. And to fail to realize that he is the great actor, the great workman, the great artist. I say again that I know nothing more wonderful than this then that I, such as I am this morning, am something that has been brought into being, something that has been fashioned by God himself, that I'm like clay in the hands of the potter, and that as I think of my Christian life in this world, I must stop thinking of it simply in terms of what I do and I'm going to do, but rather think of it in terms of what God is doing to me, that I'm in the hands of the great maker, in the hands of the Creator, and that he is working in me and upon me. Now that's the apostle's conception here. We are his workmanship. He is the worker. Well now let me try and put it a little more in detail, because I believe that the more we understand the detail of this, the more it will amaze us and thrill us. How does God do this work? It's his work. How does he do it? Well, the first thing we have to emphasize is that it is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, created in Christ Jesus. That's always the case. We've already seen it in verses 4 to 7, where we've been told that we've been quickened with him, raised together with him, seated with him in the heavenly places. In other words, we can put it like this. God makes us Christians by applying to us, by mediating to us, that which he has done for us in Christ. It's all in Christ, therefore. It's in him, in his person. It is of his fullness that we receive, and grace for grace. We receive the benefits of his death. We receive the benefits of his life. We receive his very life itself. It all comes to us from Christ. So that is how God does it. He has sent forth his Son. Then he brings the Son to us, or to use another scriptural term, he forms the Lord Jesus Christ in us. That's what he's doing. He is forming Christ in us. My little children, says Paul to the Galatians, for whom I travel in birth again in order that Christ may be formed in you. That's the idea of being a Christian. You see, it's a great mystical conception. It's a vital conception. We are all together at this point outside the realm of these little works and our little decencies and moralities. Christ being formed in me Well, how does he do then? Look for a moment at the means that God employs to form Christ in us. Take my illustration of this workshop or this factory. You can go to a shop and there you see this finished article for sale. That beautiful bowl, if you like, or that beautiful vase, call it what you like, whatever it is. There it is. Well, how has that come into being? Well, you may be fortunate enough to be taken on a visit uh, to the factory. Have you ever been to a glass factory or something like that? I remember once visiting one in Venice. and There you saw men actually making these wonderful things which you'd seen in a finished form. And you are rather amazed when you saw the first beginnings. Well, it's something like that that we have to do. How does God, I say, produce this finished article, the Christian? Go to the workshop. And there you will discover exactly how it's done. And we are told in this very epistle how it's done. The first thing we become conscious of, of course, is the Holy Spirit. You've noticed the great order in Scripture, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father plans, he sends the Son to do it, and the Son sends the Spirit in order to apply it. And God works in us, and God makes Christians of us, and God fashions us according to the image of Christ, or forms Christ in us, use any of the terms you like. Primarily by the work of the Holy Spirit. So that you see, you think of the Holy Spirit in you. Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost, says the Apostle in writing to the Corinthians. The Holy Spirit is in us if we are Christians. We can't be Christians without having the Holy Spirit in us. And he works in us. We shall consider in a moment exactly how he works. I'm simply introducing you to the moment, at the moment, to the means that God implies. There is this constant activity of the Holy Spirit in the individual Christian, in groups of Christians, in the church. The Holy Spirit is in the church, and he is working, and he is doing God's work. God is working through him. And then the next thing, of course, we have to mention is the Word, the Scripture. You remember our Lord's great high priestly prayer in which he says, Sanctify them through or by thy truth. Thy word is truth. How are we born again? Well, according to the epistle of James, we are born again by the word. Or Peter puts it, born again, he says, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. It is this word that is used of God in order to give us life. The word is preached, and the word becomes life to us. There is a seed of life in it, and God puts the life into us through putting the word into us. Now, you get that same idea here in the fifth chapter of this very epistle, where we are t- told about the washing, the sanctified, the cleansing, the washing of water, by the word. So that as we think of this process which God is working out in us, we've got to think of this word. And that is where the whole importance, you see, of reading the scriptures comes in. It is the means that God himself uses. God could have done it without means, but he has chosen to do it in this way. So he took the He told the Holy Spirit to enlighten these men, to give them understanding, to open their minds to the truth and to enable them to write the truth, and the Spirit led them and guided them. It's all designed to this great end. God as the workman, producing Christians and perfecting Christians. How tremendously important, therefore, is the Word. And then, not only that, but the preaching of the Word also. You'll find in the next chapter, in, at least in the fourth chapter of this epistle uh, to the Ephesians, uh, that Paul puts it like this. He gave gifts unto men. And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. What for? Well, for this reason. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Have you got the idea? Have you seen what's happening in the factory where Christians are being made? Look at the benches. look at the lathes. what you see there. Apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, preachers. All put there by God, and he's doing his great work. He's the general manager, the great foreman. He's using all these men to fashion Christians. That's the New Testament idea of Christianity. Not a man hesitating in his bed on Sunday morning as to whether he'll go to a place of worship or not. Will he read? Will he pray? Oh, get rid of it, my friends. Not our works, not of yourselves. God is doing this. And this is how he does it. It's God who calls men to preach the gospel. It's not a profession. Alas, it often is. But then it's of no value. It's God who calls and who gives these men in their different offices. He's planned it all. It's His design, it's His blueprint, and it's all being put into fashion the preaching and the teaching, the gifts that God gives to men and the gifts that he gives to the church. None of them are given for their own sake. They're all simply given in order that God can use them in order to bring to pass this great purpose of his. What else? Well, then we find that element which was... uh, put before us in that uh, twelfth chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews that we have read together just now. Circumstances and chastening. I'm not going to mention it all this morning, I'm simply picking out some of the important things. But you noticed that teaching in the twelfth of Hebrews, didn't you? These Hebrew Christians were tending to grumble and to complain because they were having trials and troubles and tribulations. And the argument that is put before them is just this, that that is happening to them because they are children. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. He uses his illustration. Take our earthly parents, he says. They correct us. Why do they correct us? They correct us because they're concerned about our well-being, because they're concerned about our development. The good parent chastises the child, not simply to get relief of his own passion, but because of the interest of the child. He loves the child. And it's because he's considering the child's future. For the child's sake, he does it. And The argument was, you notice, that God as our Father does exactly the same thing. Now, let's be clear about this. That doesn't mean that every time something goes wrong with us, that of necessity we are being chastened by God. We are living in a world of sin. We are living in a world where secondary causes operate. And oftentimes our illnesses and diseases and things like this, they come to us and they happen to us merely as the result of secondary causes. But... There is very clear and explicit teaching in the scripture that God does chastise his own children and he does that in order to perfect them. In other words, if we will not listen to the teaching of the scripture, if we won't accept it positively, if God has started working in us and making us and fashioning us, he will produce the ultimate result. It may involve chastening, chastisement. That's the lathe, you see. When certain angles have to be removed and certain corners have to be got rid of, God puts us on the lathe, as it were. Or to use the very illustration of the 12th of Hebrews, he puts us into the gymnasium. He makes us go through these exercises. In order that we may be perfected, he wants to develop us. And indeed you remember, don't you, the teaching in the 11th chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians in connection with the communion service, where the apostle teaches very explicitly that some members of the church at Corinth were sick, they were ill, simply because of their sin and their refusal to judge and to examine and to correct themselves. God was doing it to them by means of sickness, and he says some indeed even sleep. A great mystery that. But the teaching clearly is that some may even die because it is a part of God's way of dealing with them and bringing them to perfection. We don't understand that fully, but there is the teaching. And all I'm concerned at this moment is that we may see that that is a part of the process in this great factory. If there is a resistance in this mass of clay, if there is some obduracy, if there is some difficulty about it, God has his method, he has his machinery, he has his way, and he is producing this perfect article, and he uses all these various means and methods. We are his workmanship. Well, now then, if those are the means that God uses, what is the actual work itself? What does he actually do to us? What does he do in us? Oh, again, I'm simply picking out certain things that are of greatest importance. One of the first things a man becomes conscious of when God begins to work in him is this, that he is disturbed and he is convicted. Look back into your own experience and I'm certain you'll see it. You were living life in a certain way and going along in a certain direction. There were thousands doing the same thing. Suddenly or gradually, it doesn't matter which, you were conscious of a sense of disturbance. Somehow or another, you were not as happy as you'd been before. Questions began to arise in your mind. You notice how I put it. I didn't, I didn't say that you sat down and said to yourself, now I'm going to start thinking. Not at all. Questions arose in your mind. Isn't that it? Where did they come from? They came from God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Conviction of sin. A man's arrested. He's pulled up. He's disturbed. He doesn't understand it. He's annoyed about it indeed. He tries to shake it off. He may take a drink. He may plunge into business. He may try to be wealthy. Anything to get rid of it. But there it is. Something's happening to him. We are his workmanship. He chased me down the night and down the day. He chased me down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, the hound of heaven from whom I cannot escape. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's his workmanship. Conviction of sin. Disturbances. These curious interferences and interruptions. This sense that we're being dealt with. No oh, man can be a Christian without knowing something about that. If you don't understand to some small extent rate, the feeling of the psalmist in the hundred and ninety thirty ninth Psalm, when he cries out saying, Whither shall I flee from his presence? You're just not a Christian at all. The very sense of resistance to God is a proof that God is dealing with you and doing something to you. That's the first thing always. Disturbance, conviction of sin, uh, being arrested, being pulled up, being caused to think, thoughts come, questions, queryings. They're all the work of God through the Holy Spirit. And that's how He begins when He first takes hold of this amorphous mass of clay. He takes hold of it. That's the first step. Before he's taken it to that lathe, before he's chiseled off any portions, before he's beginning to smooth it and to put on that varnish, the first step was just taking hold of it. Has God taken hold of you, my friend? Or are you in charge of yourself still? If you are still in charge of yourself and just manipulating yourself and trying to make yourself something, you're not a Christian at all. The first thing that is true about the Christian is that he's aware that God has taken hold of him. The potter has taken hold of the clay. Well, then, of course, it goes on. The next stage is an enlightening of the mind to see truth. What a wonderful process it is. The man to whom these terms meant nothing, he may have heard them all his life, suddenly begins to see something in them. He read the Bible and was bored by it. He now sees that it's a living word and he wants to read it. That's God, God in the Spirit working in the man. And opening his mind increasingly to a perception and an understanding of the truth. We are his workmanship. It's he who is doing it, putting in the thought, the light and the power of the spirit, God opening things out, the word opening, our eyes, the understanding opening. And then in turn that leads to a desire for truth. And a thirst for it, as newborn babe says Peter, desire the sincere milk of the word. How can you if you're not born, if you haven't got life? But if you have life, you desire it, as the babe desires the milk. Desire for truth. And still more important, joy in the truth. And rejoicing in the truth. Finding pleasure in the truth. This is God's work. This is how he does it all. And then, of course, it leads in turn to this, that we become aware of the new nature that God has placed and put within us, the new principle. In spite of ourselves, we just find that we've got a new outlook. Again, I say we may dislike that. We may even hate it, but it's a fact. I find that I am not any longer what I was. I may say to myself, would to God, I'd never heard of this, so that I could go with my companions as before. But I can't. I make myself go, but I'm not happy with them. I find I'm different. I've got a new outlook. I've got new desires. And I've got new powers. We are his workmanship. He is the potter and we are the clay. Oh, yes. That is the thing that the Apostle is here teaching us, but let me go on to say just a word about the design. There is a definite design, of course, created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God had before ordained or prepared that we should walk in them. Now this is the remarkable thing, that there is a design for the Christian, and God has planned it and designed it all. What is it? Well, it's this. We are to conform to the life of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are to live in this world and in this life as He did. As I put it in a hurried word last Sunday morning, we are to live the Sermon on the Mount. We are to carry out the ethical instruction of these New Testament epistles. To love one another, to put all filthy communications out of our mouth, and all foolish jesting and laughter and talking. It's all to go, says Paul. Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given himself for us. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor jesting which are not convenient but rather giving of thanks. That kind of life. That's what we've been formed for. That's what we are fashioned unto. That's the design. That's the shape. That's the mold. That's the image that you and I are to be like. And God's making us for that. But that's in this life. Would you like to know what the ultimate design is? See, this is a process. You don't become perfect in a second. Sanctification is a process. And God puts us through the process by the means that I've already indicated. Do you want to know, I say, the result of it all? Well, this is the ultimate. This is what will be true of us in glory, in eternity, when the work is really finished. He has given these apostles and so on for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ himself. That's going to be the end. You and I, as certainly as we are Christians at this moment, are going to attain unto that. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Or listen to him putting it in the fifth chapter about the church in general. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it unto himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that it should be holy and without blemish. Christian people, we are in that process, as certainly as we are Christians. God has taken hold of us, he's fashioning us, and he's going to keep on working in us and with us until we've come to that. Without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, no blemish will remain. Every vestige of evil will have gone, and we shall be absolutely perfect. That's the design, that's the pattern. And the only other thing I want to say is this, that in the light of this doctrine, it is absolutely certain that we shall come to that. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ Nothing outside us can ever prevent it. I'll go further. Nothing inside us will ever prevent it. God never starts a work and gives it up half completed. That is utterly incompatible with his majesty and his glory. When God begins, God continues. If God has taken hold of you and has started fashioning you according to the image of Christ, my dear friend, as certainly as I stand in this pulpit this morning, he will go on with it until you attain unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. He will go on with it until there is no spot nor wrinkle nor any such thing and no blemish at all and you stand before him perfect and faultless with exceeding joy. What a glorious doctrine, yes, but in certain respects what a terrifying doctrine. If you are a Christian and you, in any way, resist God's will for you. Well, be prepared for what's coming to you. Be prepared for chastening chastisement. Be prepared for severe and harsh dealing, because He will perfect you. He has set His love upon you. You're in His hands. There are no rejects out of that factory. God's work is always perfect and it's always complete. What a blessed grounds of assurance that in spite of my waywardness and sinfulness and imperfection, my only hope, I say this morning, is this, that I'm in his hands, he's the workman and I'm the clay, and I know that he will bring to pass his perfect will. If it depended upon me or any one of us, the whole thing would long since have been hopeless. We are his workmanship. Very well, my friends, I leave you with just three or four questions as tests. Is this happening to you? Can you say that you are God's workmanship? Have you got that subjective feeling of being dealt with by God? Are you aware of the presence and of the hands? Are you conscious of being molded and fashioned? Do you agree with this doctrine or are you fighting against it? It's a very good test, then. Are you desiring the sincere milk of the Word as a newborn babe? But still, the best test of all is this. Are you desiring holiness? Created in Christ Jesus, unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. It's a part of his plan. If you don't desire to be holy, I don't see that you have any right to think that you're a Christian. It is a part of God's design that we be prepared... Unto good works, if you think you can take out forgiveness only, you are smashing the plan. It isn't the plan indeed at all. When God looked upon you and loved you and began to work in you to make you a Christian, he had already prepared the works which you should live and perform. There is no such thing as justification without sanctification. If there is no beginning of sanctification in you, you are not justified. Don't delude yourself. Don't mislead yourself. There is no such thing as faith without works. Faith without works is dead. The proof of faith is works. There is no value in a profession of Christianity unless it's accompanied by a desire to be like Christ, a desire to be rid of sin, a desire after positive holiness. It's essential according to this verse. We are his workmanship created by him in Christ Jesus unto good works. He's making us for that. So if he makes us, he makes us for that. You can't be like of ours and unlike it. God works in us to produce that. So the final test of whether God is working in us is that we desire to be more and more like Christ. Holy and pure, separate from the world and from sin, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that we may please the God who hath thus begun to work in us.